Welcome to Saving the Game. This is Episode 91, Moral Universes, Part 1 of 2, recorded Thursday, July 28th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, Chris, and Katrina. Hey listeners, Grant here. A quick heads up. This episode was so awesome, we couldn't stop recording it. Good guests keep us talking for a long time, apparently. To make listening a little easier, we've broken this into two parts. We're releasing both halves on the same day, two separate posts. So once you're done with part one, make sure you download and listen to the second part. This is something new for us, so we just wanted to make sure you didn't miss half an episode somewhere along the way. Thanks, and enjoy. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Katrina. And I'm Chris. And we've got Chris and Katrina from the Gameable Saturday Morning podcast Currently. this time. <laughs> I, have you guys changed every time we've had you on? That's fantastic. It's going to be a Doctor <laughs> Who situation where every time we meet you guys, we're going to be in a slightly different form. Have a new hat. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think last time we had Katrina on for episode 58, and we had both of you on for 67, and I think in that interim you changed from Gameable Disney to Gameable Pixar. I think you're right. So, yeah, that's actually hilarious, and I just noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> but this will be the end of that streak, because the Gameable Saturday Morning Podcast will never end. There are too many Saturday Morning cartoons. So many. <laughs> oh, my you goodness, You say yes. that now, but the way you chewed through the Disney and Pixar canon was... <laughs> you know, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> yeah. Then again, they didn't do any of the, uh, you know, direct-to-DVD stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. And there's a lot of stuff that should have been direct-to-DVD and was instead direct-to-ABC. <laughs> so, yes. All right. So, for those who don't know them, we should probably let Chris and Katrina introduce themselves. Take it away, folks. Okay. Well, um, so we are Chris and Katrina. We are the hosts of the Gameable series of podcasts where we take a role-playing perspective analyzing uh, various kinds of animation, Disney films, Pixar films. Um, So that's, uh, yeah, I guess basically what we do. It's been running a long time. We've done all the Disney movies, all the Pixar movies, and now we're on to Saturday morning cartoons. And yeah, we talk about the characters, the settings, and the plots, and all that stuff, and turn them into gaming material. Yep. Yes. Occasionally we talk about, we talked about music a lot in the gameable Disney days. We didn't bother so much with Pixar and now we're on to the, the wild world of Saturday morning cartoons, which means you have to fact check the songs that do exist. It, it's fun. It's, it's been an interesting journey looking at things with our gamer goggles on, like how do you make this into a thing for your game? Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's really a stretch, but it's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say. And I've said this in the past talking about your show, but for any new listeners, if you aren't listening to the Gameable podcast, as I occasionally (laughs) refer to it, the Gameable oeuvre of shows, you need to do so because I've not heard any other podcast that's as much fun and has the same excellent story analysis. It's fantastic. Well, thanks so much. And furthermore, if you like kind of gaming analysis of a niche topic like we do, they are right in your wheelhouse there, too. So, yes. True. Yeah, it's uh, so good. If we find a few more, we should start some kind of a network or something. A a network of 
corners, like little corner case podcast. <laughs> yeah. You know, we could even call it the corner case network. <laughs> yeah. Be a great idea. That's not too bad. Okay. You know, um, there we on, go. The, on a recent episode of the Smash Fiction podcast, uh, Saving the Game was identified as a podcast closely affiliated with the Game Mobile podcast. So, real affiliates. Yeah. Yeah. We're already a de facto network. Wow. Smash Fiction said so. Okay. All right. Well, then done. All right. Yeah. I'll make this happen in the next couple of All weeks, right. you know, once life calms down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. It's been a week in all capitals. Okay. Our topic tonight is actually a pretty big and pretty interesting one. We're talking about creating a moral universe. But before we get to that, we need to do our Patreon backer question. Little note for those of you just joining us, maybe because you're a big fan of the Gameable Saturday Morning Podcast and you're like, wait, what's this? If you are back us at a certain level on Patreon, we add a question of yours to a list and roll on it randomly. So, I've got a D6. Let's see what happens here. One. Okay. So, oh, this is a huge one. Okay. Why not? Um, <laughs> hey, this person's going to get twice as much analysis as they normally would. This is a bonus. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it definitely is. Okay. So, this is from uh, Doug Hagler, Reverend. Doug Hagler, actually. Here we go. As gamers, we talk about the satanic panic phase of RPG history and the ridiculous responses to D&D among certain religious figures. But I wonder whether there are things about gaming that you guys think are actually potentially perilous. Are there aspects or situations in games that come to mind or that you have experienced that have led to harm or might lead to harm? Chris, Katrina, I'll let you guys lead off since you're our guest. Any thoughts on the topic? No. Do you want to... Well, let's see. Um... If you're not sure, I do actually have something on this. I was going to say, nothing jumps to mind as something that's really hazardous, especially in the sense of, like, moral peril. I mean, there. when I think of any social dynamic, of course, there's a risk of being in an unhealthy dynamic or making choices that you might otherwise would not because you've got peers and you've got that social that social bubble. But within mm-hmm. gaming material itself, nothing jumps to mind. Well, I'll piggybacking on that. Um, that's the one thing I've maybe, I would identify that I've experienced in my earlier days gaming. I think it's a little better today. But um, particularly teenage boys creating that social bubble of gaming sometimes it can turn into uh, a really nasty sort of misogynist power fantasy in certain cases. And gaming creates a sort of um, peer support group for that, that I think can be, can be really dangerous and it's gaming specific. It's not like other things that boys might do together because in gaming, you're kind of creating a world that can tend to reinforce that as though it were reality. You know, it's like the worst, it, it makes me think of, um, uh, uh, like certain novels have this like ideological bent where it's like you're creating a whole world with a cast of characters who reinforce your ideology. And I've seen that happen right. in games where you end up with, like, you know, like everyone has their story of a, a horrible fantasy game they were in where like the only women who existed were like damsels in distress and succubuses and stuff like that. Or even games where like sexual assault took place within the fiction. Boo. Yeah, that's, Boo. that's yeah. probably Don't the morally... And a quick note on that, that was my wife's first experience with gaming. Uh, it has uh, taken me a, over a decade to try and get that fixed. Yeah, yeah. So, I've heard some horror stories yeah. and I've thought to myself, man, it's a good thing I didn't run into those games because I might have just pepper sprayed someone on principle. Like, <laughs> you don't get to say yeah. that to me. 
Especially not about this play pretend malarkey. No, 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 no. Doom. Doom is uh, yeah. yours now. But <laughs> Definitely. Peter, anything? Chris and I were thinking along similar lines. I, I think it can go beyond just misogyny into just kind of a really unhealthy power fantasy of any number of different kinds. A sadistic one, um, a racially charged one even in some cases. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it can be any of those things. I, I think if it's basically... <sighs> Giving you a way to vent your darker impulses and affirm that and, like, sit around and chuckle about how awesome that all is, you're probably in real unhealthy territory at that point. Yeah, I think you're right. And I'll, I'll wrap this up just by saying that I think, in general, any sort of echo chamber is dangerous. <laughs> and when you're sitting down at, at a table to game, you kind of want to sit down with people you can stand to be around for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've played in games where that wasn't the case, but they tend to be people like you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all kind of nerds of a feather. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's, That's good. a good um, one. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of things I'm stealing in the future. <laughs> fair enough. But that echo chamber can form around things that aren't just the game and you know general life things it's very easy to get trapped in bad habits because well everybody in my little group does that and it's normal and then once you kind of get out of that you kind of wait this isn't normal what do you mean and i suspect that's a lot of like the problems we see at conventions with certain people you know the the game store you know the stinky game store guy Mm -hmm. that stereotype you know all of those stereotypes i think are reinforced at a table that where those things are just normalized or at least not commented on. So I I think that's where the peril is. It's not a specific thing. Like there's no specific moral danger, but rather it forms the basis of any number of traps. Yeah. And and if I can just add on, I think that sometimes the mechanism of that is, and the one that makes people feel particularly victimized if they stumble into a game like that and they're outsiders is the use of the rules because it is a game to force that group ideology on an individual player by mm-hmm. saying, you know, your character can or can't do this, or this can or can't happen in the fiction because of the rules, which, you know, suit our ideology. Um, I remember having a discussion about this with a GM uh, with whom I was playing Oz of all games and nothing bad happened in the game, but there was sort of a discussion about it. Like, you know, this one character could do this really repugnant thing by the rules of this game what would we do about that? And the GM was kind of going through these contortions of like, well, I mean, we could read the rules this way, so that couldn't happen. And we could, you know, I could dock the person XP if they did use their magic that way. Mm-hmm. And my thing was, that's not a rules issue. If you're going to do something at the table that's going to make another player uncomfortable, that's that's like basic human decency. The rules don't really come into it. And as the GM to step in and say, I'm going to dock you XP, or I'm going to add a plus two difficulty to your role, implies that the rules do determine what you're allowed to do to another player. And that shouldn't be the right. case. The rules always take a backseat to like the interpersonal interaction at the table. And as long as you remember that and don't let people use the rules to like push other people around, I think that you are relatively safe from the potential like moral danger of someone feeling as though they've been uh, victimized at the table, which is, you know, the worst outcome. Okay. Any other comments? Just, uh, remember your empathy. Like... Don't let anything sub in for that. It's to kind of build on what Chris said there, just the rules are not a substitute for being a reasonable person, and they don't justify being an unreasonable person. Very true. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, cool. Doug, thanks for sending that question in. We got a lot of mileage out of it. Double mileage. And very complimentary of our main topic, strangely enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It actually worked out that way. That's pretty good. So, Doug, we just need a new question from you and uh, anyone else who backs us on Patreon. Uh, we've co- reached out to you if you haven't sent us a question yet, but if you want to back us, get your question read on the air, if the dice go your way, go ahead and do so. You can find us at patreon.com slash saving the game. And of course, it helps us if you rate and review us on iTunes, uh, share us around on Facebook, Twitter, any other social media platform you might still use. And uh, yeah, we love it. Just a gentle reminder, there are now three of you that need to get us questions. This is part of what you're paying for with your Patreon, so get those in. Well, let's go ahead then and jump to our scripture here. We've got some scripture relevant for tonight's topic. Chris, Katrina, do you guys want to read one of these or you want to leave that to us? Uh, you want to take one, Katrina? No, none okay. of the readable things are close enough to me. Okay, then I'll take, uh, I'll take the first one. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Genesis 3, 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And I'll take Amos here. This is Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. And our last passage is Matthew 5, to 45 But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right, so tonight's topic is creating a moral universe. And I'm actually going to leave this to Peter to explain, because Peter, Chris, and Katrina have almost entirely created this topic by themselves. Uh, Honestly, if you look at the outline, uh, if if you're a Patreon backer, you actually can, it's like... 90% 90% Chris and Katrina. I'm not, like, somebody wrote an episode for us, and I don't know what to do with it. It's kind of great. Um, <laughs> but y'all go ahead. Explain what you what you mean by creating a moral universe. Well, we should probably define what we mean by a moral universe for this uh, episode first. So, um, in the context of this episode, and also just kind of generally... Uh, moral universe is a set of assumptions about the consequences and feasibility of moral action in the setting. So if you hear phrases like might makes right, or it's inverse right makes might for that matter, uh, nice people finish last, virtue is its own reward, and no good deed goes unpunished, those are referring to the character of the moral universe that your setting is taking place in. Okay, or at least the speaker's perception exactly. of that moral universe. All right. So how do you, I guess we're going to talk about this in general, but there are setting details and themes that you can put into a game that really tangibly redirect your character's moral compasses. And if not your characters, at least they kind of put some weight on it. They say, hey, this is the general trend of the setting. This is generally what it's like. It's closely related to theme, but often serves as a backdrop for specific themes? Yeah, I think that it's uh, it's a way to 
sort of ground the moral storytelling that you're doing, which I think, you know, almost all player characters in a game do because you're making moral choices all the time. And so in some games, that's a total free for all. And everybody's just expressing, you know, their personal attitude. And that's an approach you can take that in this, in the moral universe of this game, nobody tells you what's right and wrong. You just start fumbling around in the dark. And then in other games, it's very clear. We all have a unified perspective and it's backed up in the fiction this is right, this is wrong. Now, your character might be mistaken about that, but they are mistaken, definitely. You know, because we've all agreed, Mm -hmm. this is right, this is wrong. The compass is very firm. Okay. Now, obviously, in a particular setting, you'll have exceptions to that general perception, right? For for characters, I think. I think some characters may feel one way or the other about it. But as to whether there are exceptions of the actual moral orientation of the universe, then that depends. I mean, there are some settings where it's very absolute. Uh, this makes me think of um, stories where, for example, it's like uh, big on oaths, like oaths in your word are super, super important. And often it's a plot point in those yeah. stories that like, no matter how dire the situation, if you break your word, that is bad and you will be punished. It doesn't matter how important it is that you do that. There, That is an unbreakable moral precept. And if you violate it, then there will be consequences. And then other universes are moral relativist universes where, you know, we can start the game with somebody doing something, crossing a moral line and being punished for it. And then later, another situation comes up where maybe that kind of transgression is the right thing to do. And the theme is moral relativism. Hmm. Okay. I'm I'm getting it here. So let's talk about the aspects of these moral universes. There, you've got a, a list of these that I kind of want to touch on. We'll We'll spend more or less time on them as appropriate. But I think the first one... And the most important one to talk about is the moral center, the objective moral standard of your world in fiction, if there is one. Generally, this has to be implied by either the narrative or, in a game, maybe the backstory. Am I right? Yeah. Um, The the moral center definitely needs to have something that it connects to yeah it definitely it it almost always connects to something that the player or the character can connect to that there's some sort of objective there's some kind of general moral sense to the universe that's shared and you have to be able to touch the moral center if there is one and that's that's really important because if you want a moral center but nobody knows about it it might as well not be there yeah Mm. that's maybe the worst case you know where you have the classic example of you know a player's playing a paladin and they've taken this code of conduct to always do right but nobody really talks about what right is but the gm has a definite idea of what it is and that comes as a surprise to the player later on that's what you want to avoid you've got a you've got a moral universe that's objective right and wrong but nobody knows about it except the game master that is a a bad gaming situation right i I suspect in that case it's not so much defined as the GM just sort of goes, ah, that seemed bad. Yeah, possibly risky. Or it might stumble upon something that the GM just assumed everybody else thought. I mean, um, mm. you know, there are situations, for example, like uh, maybe, a, again, going to like classic gaming moral quandaries, killing the prisoners. Sometimes you can have, uh, I've actually seen this happen at tables, like it's something like that comes up and nobody expected it to. And all of a sudden you realize everybody at the table had different, but very clear assumptions about how we all felt about this. And you just don't talk about it until it happens. But uh, for everyone, as far as everyone was concerned coming into that, that was bedrock. Like that was what we all do. It's what it means to be lawful good or whatever. So I think if you are going to have something that's objective, you either have to make it tangible in the universe. Like there is a God of good and here are his commandments or you got to make it super clear through the narrative. You know, when characters do bad things, 
we all have a narrative voice talking about how bad they are. Like, um, like our enemies are so bad. You know how bad they are? They kill their prisoners. But that's how bad they are. You have somebody making that speech just to make it clear, like, this is our stance and this is the stance we oppose. It's a silly example, but yeah. what it reminds me of is um, how the Grinch stole Christmas. Mm. Like, there's no cosmological constant present <laughs> in that story that's this is good and this is evil. But it's very clear from the narrator's voice that there is good yeah. and there is evil and this guy's real bad. Right. I mean, there's a whole song about it. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. And I suppose related to that, there's kind of a general moral arc that most characters, and I don't necessarily mean protagonists here, but most characters in the setting will go through. I'm thinking here of kind of a a noir or very kind of dark dystopian sort of setting, The Crow, for example, where everybody's just sort of worn down and beat down and corrupted because everything's awful and no matter what your starting position on anything is everything just seems terrible and there's nothing you can do so you might as well just give in to that corruption it's the noir moral universe like everything is bleak and you should be bleak too because why sh- why not i mean there's <laughs> there's one way to get through this rotten world and it's to be as rotten as you can and um right it's, it approaches nihilism really. yeah I always think of film noir with that because those films often strike me as very much all you can do is shoot people before they shoot you. It's a bummer. (laughs) Well, I think that there are, you know, there are different kinds of noir. But um, I think uh, your point's well taken that they do tend to be universes that grind you down where it takes constant effort just to like tread water and keep your moral standards where they are. Um, you know, gradually characters tend to sink and really have to fight against that. Um, and I think it, you know, varies from story to story, whether you think there is a light at the end of that tunnel, whether characters can ultimately escape those forces somehow or ultimately find some kind of, you know, ultimate redemption, or whether it is we're all going to go bad someday. It's just a question of when. Well, and one of the ways that that manifests, I'm thinking of L.A. Confidential, is the more the characters try the movie by the way not the book which are very different but the more the characters try and do the right thing and try and be the good guys the more and more hazardous the world gets around them and the higher and higher the stakes keep climbing Mm. and you know not all of the protagonist characters in that well i'm not going to spoil it but they don't all come out of it in equal condition let's just say Mm. yeah that's fair i'm always interested in in those stories where you have a universe that is um, actively fighting against the good guy in a way, especially where it is raising the stakes. I think that's a great way to do it in gaming because I think players become frustrated when they want to be heroes and you just kind of, as the GM, you just kind of keep bringing out that stick and just whacking them on the head like, no, you're trying to do good things. Stop it, stop it, stop it. it. Inside, you may be rooting for them, but to players, that feels like punishment. But if instead of punishment, you raise the stakes... If it's like this is getting more and more dangerous because you're rubbing people the wrong way because you're the only person in town trying to do the right thing. You're mm-hmm. making everybody uncomfortable. So now this is getting serious. That's a way to ratchet up the tension without making it feel hopeless, which I think is what you often want right. in a story like that. I, to me personally, I love stories where it is possible but really difficult to be heroic because possible but difficult things are, are where you define character. Right. Narratively difficult. Mm-hmm. I should stress mm-hmm. that. There's a Because we're talking about a game... The fact that these stakes are getting higher does not mean that difficulty classes or target numbers or whatever are getting higher. You're not putting mechanical barriers in front of your players saying, 
if your characters don't roll really well, they can't be good. Mm -hmm. Rather, you're saying, here are narrative choices you have to make, and that gets more and more fraught, but the procedural part of it is still... Attainable. The same. Yes, attainable. There we go. I can all, I, I'll say, just to be a little contrary, that sometimes it can be... It can be really interesting, especially if you have a player who's excited about mechanical challenges, to say you can have like your ultimate win scenario, but it's a harder role, or it's a little trickier, or you're going to have to get somebody to help you, just because that sense of us, like, not necessarily a barrier, because you're right, a barrier is a non-starter, but something like, this is just a little tougher. This is just going to be, like, you could take the easy way route, the easy way out here, and it's not going to be as good as you would like it to be. If it's a if it's a surmountable challenge, it kind of signals to the player that it's hard to be a hero in this universe, but you can still you can still try and you can still do it. I'm not right. going to stop you, yeah. but it it kind of points out to the character like you're doing a real hard thing here. That's a good point because then if you give that choice between a partial success and a harder complete success, you do really mechanically offer the option to just kind of give in, you know. Don't don't go for the gold. And uh, Chris has occasionally oh, presented those scenarios to me as a player, and I always resent them. I'm always like, ah, <laughs> curses. I could definitely do some good here, but not all the good I want to. This is this is irksome to me. I have to make a decision. Drat. But it's definitely a good way to really get somebody into that situation, into what's going on with the narrative, and make them really decide what the best thing for their character to do is, what's going to be the most fun, the most interesting going forward. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to have to be doing a lot of that in our upcoming D&D game, so good to know. <laughs> you know what media property immediately comes to mind with this whole concept? Maybe not the specific implementation that you guys were talking about at the end, but High Noon, the old Gary Cooper Western. Hmm. Oh man, I haven't seen that in forever. He keeps trying to do the right thing and the stakes keep getting higher and higher and higher and people keep refusing to help him and then even at the end the few people that did decide to also kind of back out and he's left to do it alone mm -hmm. so yeah i i confess i haven't seen high noon but the few westerns i have seen many of them do follow that same formula of it's it's harder and harder to stand up and do the right thing high noon is excellent and it's not even all that long you should get around to watching it at some point i think you'd like some of the the narrative beats and stuff in there. Oh, I'm I'm sure I would. I just it's never crossed my your your plate, as it were. <laughs> yeah, plate plate seems like a really terrible metaphor here, but Path? it's the best I got. <laughs> sure, that'll yeah, work. Speaking of westerns, you know we would be remiss not to mention uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, which oh, is oh yeah uh, such a great game yes. for this kind of storytelling. It goes to the mechanics too because it does have built-in escalation. You. Mm -hmm. If if things aren't going so well for you, you're failing, you can either give in and not have the stakes rise any higher and just accept the loss, or you can ante up, you can raise the stakes and have another shot at winning the conflict. So it really is a game that's totally centered on like, how important is this to you, which goes straight to both character storytelling and your sense of the morality of the situation. Is it morally acceptable to walk away here or do I have to be all in? Right. And that kind of brings us to our next thing, which is basically is doing evil so useful that there's kind of a virtue tax you choose the easy way or the hard way is are those weighted right mm -hmm. that i think can matter it, if you're playing say a, a a game that's all about criminals like uh, shadow run or blades in the dark or anything like that 
usually doing the wrong thing is a whole lot easier than doing the right thing. Like, there's a tax on every good thing you try and do. <laughs> yeah, which I'll tell you as a GM, I don't have a problem with, but I've <laughs> grown to be dubious of it as a GM uh, because I know that that, is, that can be rough from a player perspective. Well, and it can just be such yeah. a drag because you've particularly, like, what comprises this virtue tax? Like, is it literally my money? Is it literally, like, how many bribes do I have to pay or something? Or is it is it just the difficulty or, like, what's going into the virtue task? Because I think, again, stakes, really good. Really kind of a fun and profitable virtue tax. When it's something where you just continually lose out, like, basically everyone is so corrupt and I'm the only one who's not acting in a corrupt fashion, so I'm leading resources, and so it's really hard for me to make any headway. That's too much. That's when you start having someone who feels like they can't play because they don't have the resources they need in the game universe to get anything done. That's yeah. where I think it, it can get troublesome. Right. And I think that's where you get that sort of bleak outlook of, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't do any good. That is a great point. And I think that is maybe where I would go if I were trying to impose that tax, but in a way that's still fun. Because that's the sense that you're not doing any good it may be fun for a character to grapple with, but it's not, in my mind, fun for a player to grapple with. No. So the problem oftentimes right. is, you know, in real life, when people make sacrifices for the right thing, for virtue, for, for doing good, they do it because they expect it to make a difference. And if you're in a game that doesn't track that difference, but it does track the cost, then you're in trouble. So mm -hmm. you can really, if you track the result, then you can achieve something. For example, there are games, too rarely, I think, that track the health of a community that you live in and that you operate in. So all these little muggings I'm stopping, all these, you know, community projects I'm investing in, the fact that I do the right thing and go through the proper channels instead of just being this violent vigilante, all that contributes to the health of the city. If there's something that tracks that, then I'm totally up for paying the virtue tax to fight crime the right way because I can see those numbers rising. The thing I care about is improving because I'm doing everything the hard way. Whereas if the GM just blows that off, charges me for the virtue, but then there's nothing changes. It's still Gotham. And the Gotham. rate of muggings is the same <laughs> and everything is still all grimy and it's still raining. Yeah. Then why am or I doing this? Or worse, it increases. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one game I'm going to mention that isn't out yet, but Peter and I have a close eye on that talks about this to a certain degree. Cam Banks, who works for Atlas Games, is working on Pillar of Fire, which is this big sci-fi RPG, but it's it tracks social change. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is your, your characters over generations are steering societies and changing their values. Yeah, that's cool. That is cool. It's not out yet. They're still working on it. I think they are preparing to kickstart it kind of soon. I keep a close eye on Cam Banks' Twitter feed because I'm really excited about this game. <laughs> so that... Things like that, you know, a game like that, as soon as that comes off the press and into my hand, I am I think we'll have a, a clearer idea of, like, a good mechanic for that, because it's a game built around that. But it's, it's something you can do in other games, obviously. The one thing that I did want to say is, if you are looking to explore this particular sub-theme, Batman tends to do that. Especially <laughs> if you look at the intellectual property over time as it's handled by different writers and creators. Uh, the, the various kind of uh, views of the virtue tax show up differently in 
the animated series, in the comic books, in the recent Arkham video games, in the Christopher Nolan movies, in the older Batman movies. But that theme is always kind of in there, and it's interesting to compare and contrast the different versions and how they handle this particular thing. Right. Okay. Kind of on the other side of this, I'll quick say that um, making evil cost when you do it can be a really good way to signal what the center of your moral universe is and to signal to players mm-hmm. that if you want to take, um, like it makes me think of the kind of the archetypal deal with the devil sort of thing. Like you can do this and it will get done, but it's going to cost you either now or later in a big way. That that can be a really an interesting thing to include on any action that um, would be evil in your moral universe. Yeah, definitely. It's also very pulpy. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot yeah. of the pulp comics have that idea of, you know, crime doesn't pay. And in fact, it there's a heavy tax on doing wrong. And, you know, you get on the straight and narrow and things will generally work out. That's, a, that's something, if you're trying to have that much lighter, warmer kind of superhero, villain and vigilante style game, that works really well. Put that in, and and you get a clear sense of where that moral center is. Yeah, you know, I've done this in um in our Pathfinder game. It's not something that necessarily the players have interacted with, but I've had to struggle with this with uh, an important paladin NPC because sometimes the mm. code of conduct doesn't seem like it makes much sense, right? Like I can go kill people with a sword, but I can't kill them with poison, even when that would be a much more practical way without hurting innocents to solve a problem. And that's what I've had to come around to is that it is a truth. at least for this character, in her belief, probably for the universe, that when you use certain tactics, when you do certain things, it is a corrupting influence on the soul. It'll start you down a path where bad things are going to happen, um, even if it seems like the smartest thing to do. And so just as an article of faith, you have to say, no matter how much sense it seems like it makes, I'm not going to do those things. And if you make that true in the moral universe of your game, then you give a really good reason not to make moral compromises because it is introducing poison to your system. And that brings us to compromise, where there are situations in games, and I think this comes up in almost every game, where you have to choose between action and inaction. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a clear moral compromise, but there, there are plenty of others. And the question of, is there always a right answer, like what you were talking about? Or do you have to look at each situation and you know, sort of get the maximum utility out of the situation, no matter what the effects to individuals are if i if i do the greater good it'll all work out or i hope it'll all work out is this a setting where that is the case you know superman throws people through buildings that's not particularly good for the building but presumably beating up the supervillain is more important (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is at least one would hope so gotta hope so but wrecking an apartment complex even in you know a cartoon not like the terrible live action films but you know, in, in a cartoon, like the Justice League cartoon uh, that's on Netflix, you see them just, they're through buildings left and right, and you see them, you know, knocking, tumbling through kids' living rooms. Well, unless, and this is very likely in Metropolis, they've got superhero insurance, but presumably that stops paying out after a while. <laughs> can can um, you imagine being the adjuster for that? I, okay, okay, quick qu- aside. This form, understand- lightning powers, time powers. <laughs> Oh, sludge powers. Ooh. <laughs> Quick aside, I don't keep up with TV news very much, but my understanding is that one of the four major networks was working on a superhero show that didn't have superheroes, but was in fact 
an insurance office in a world with superheroes. Oh, man. <laughs> that would, <have laughs> that would be glorious. That sounds great. It's not necessarily super gameable, but it's... Oh, challenge accepted. Of... <laughs> I would love to do that well, in, like, drama system or something. Okay, drama system, maybe, but, like, you know, it's not... It wouldn't be super high action, but as kind of a sitcom-y kind of game, mm-hmm. maybe touching on some action stuff, yeah, okay. Could work. But anyway, just a quick aside. But, you know, presumably Justice League-style superheroes have decided, look, I am willing to do this to try and do something greater. But does that necessarily take them off the hook for that? This this is the aspect of this whole discussion that actually, uh, I think, started this topic because of uh, Peter's blog post about his experience in, in a video game being forced to make a moral compromise. Yeah. Okay. Just folks, for reference, it's the You Must Be This Treacherous to Ride the Story blog post that I made a while ago. Mm-hmm. Good one. Yeah. And I, I just was sort of fascinated by that. And at the same time, uh, Katrina and I were watching uh, Deep Space Nine, which is an example of where, like, you go from early Star Trek kind of super optimism, like, we're from Earth, we know how to do the right thing, and we're going to teach the universe. It is rather uncompromising in its moral outlook and, and very utopian for that reason. Then you, you go fast forward to DS9, and you've got a lot of situations where there is no squeaky clean way to move forward in this situation. You know, like you've got an occupied territory, you've got their former oppressors, you're, tra- you're in the middle of them. It's a complex kind of real world type situation. Um, and that is, um, that's interesting for gaming. It's what I prefer. Yet I know that sometimes you want to play a hero, you want to play Captain Kirk. And you don't like being put into a situation where you've got to do wrong by somebody to move forward. And I think some people, even in real life, people differ about that. You know, can we always just have faith that if we do the right thing by the book, everything will work out because we know there's always a right way? Or do you believe maybe sometimes there's not a morally upright way to move forward and we have to choose the least evil? Mm-hmm. And this is a yep. big place yeah. where you can signal tone of your game. Like, um, even in when we were talking about, like, the paladin and whether or not what they're doing is true in the universe, if you have paladins and paladins are succeeding, unless they do the things that aren't on their list, well, that tells you a lot about the kind of universe you're in. You're in a moral universe with objective moral goods because there are deities in charge of it and they will, they will take vengeance if you break their rules. Or if you have a universe like Deep Space Nine where there aren't any like there, where that kind of thing doesn't happen, then you signal that this is a, more like a world we kind of live in where we don't know all the time what the right thing is or if we did the right thing because we can't see all those consequences. And that that's a big uh-huh. a big way to do it. And how how um, justified you can feel in, compromise, in compromises in your universe or in your game tells you a lot about the moral character of the universe it exists in. You know, to right. go back to the paladin for just a moment, I, I think sometimes the reasoning behind why they have the codes they do can start giving you some clues as to your own underlying assumptions about this sort of thing. Like, for instance, the uh, the poison dilemma that Chris brought up earlier. If the reason why the paladin has that is because it's just kind of accepted that sword play is honorable and poison is not, well, then that tells you one thing about your universe. If the reason, on the other hand, why that stricture exists is you have to face the violence that you do to people. Mm. You have to be there in person and witness every moment of it until it's done. You can't just poison somebody's drink and walk away and kind of, you know, excuse yourself from the ugly parts of what you do. Yeah. Those two differing philosophies, the, the difference between those, signal different moral universes. 
That's a really good point. They do. What's the justification for your rule is a really yeah. important question. And that kind of takes us, if only because we're talking about paladins, to redemption and forgiveness. What happens after somebody has done an evil act and wants to atone? How does atonement work? Is this a D&D style game where there's prescribed mechanical processes for atonement? Or is there no atoning and you just live with the consequences? What's the process? Is forgiveness freely given? Or do you have to do something to repent? Oh man, this kind of thing is so much fun to figure out. Like, it because is. you have so many options. And I think that the, the answers to this question can be varied even within a, any given moral universe. You can have someone who belongs to a structure either spirit either philosophical or religious that has rules about it and that can be interesting you can also have someone who has a personal code and then has to figure out what they think is right to do for their own particular missteps and you can have it also just come from a, a kind of broader folk culture i think about like the idea of um of the way communities can police themselves like uh, mm-hmm. we live in a pretty small town and there are people who have had mo- times in their life where they need to like write a letter to the editor or no one is ever going to go back to their store. And that kind of joint social censure and how it operates in different communities or um, social forgiveness, the idea mm-hmm. of a community reaching out, like the way those things are signaled, the- they all have a lot of variation in their mechanisms and it can be really fun to figure them out. Yeah, I suspect this is something that Many of our listeners will have had happen in their church where something has happened and there's at least a, an apology or, you know, something that needs to happen to kind of you know, get back into that community, which isn't necessarily required, but there's sort of a social agreement that you need to, to make amends. Well, and if this breaks down, you wind up with situations where, um, remember when we had Stephen Jarjura on from um, Postcards from the Dungeon? Oh, yeah. I remember him telling a story on a forum about a church that he went to when he was younger, where the church actually split over the color that the door was painted. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. When this stuff breaks down, it can get real ridiculous. Wowzers. Yes. Well, and here's another question for you. What happens when somebody who has done evil does not ask for forgiveness, does not even attempt to atone, is there a punishment for that? Uh, My kind of go-to for this is actually The Crow. Mm. Uh, Not the comics, I admit, the movie with Brandon Lee, because I've never actually read those comics. Terrible nerd, I know. (laughs) They're not bad, but Brandon Lee, man. Anything with Brandon Lee. He wasn't around long enough. I've got to enjoy what I've got. (laughs) I know. Terrible 90s nerd, at least. Let me put it that way. (laughs) But you have him as this sort of karmic figure where people who are offered atonement and accept he heals and those who don't accept and fight back and try and and stay in their sinful position he destroys you have this very judging figure well and not only does he destroy them he does it in a uniquely poetic way tailored to that individual person it's very karmic yes yeah And so is there a consequence for saying, no, I don't want to atone for what I've done? I think most of us want there to be, but if there is or isn't, or if it isn't obvious, that can say things about your world. Definitely. It does. 
I'll give you one here and uh, spoilers for uh, later story and Preacher um, for those who may be following the TV show now um, or who have yet to get to the comics. In Preacher, there is a, a guy who uh, Jesse meets uh, who is uh, a former Nazi. He's, he worked with the Nazis in World War II, and he's now living in a community in Texas where people think he's something other than what he is. But Jesse figures it out. And this is guy's an old man now, obviously, right? And so he's just saying, you know, that was a lifetime ago. I was a young man, didn't know what I was doing. I have a life here. And the community has accepted him. But Jesse throws him a rope and says, you know what to do, and forces him to hang himself. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you, and you wonder why I haven't finished reading Preacher. <laughs> uh, but, you know, yeah. the idea there, I think, is, and that's one moral universe you can have where when evil happens, when you do something that deserves punishment, that punishment has to happen. It, it, is, it doesn't matter if you're forgiven or not. It has to be addressed. Whereas, you know, in other games, forgiveness is enough. Or in other games, you don't even need forgiveness. If you can get away with it, you'll never pay for your crimes. Yeah. And, and I, I guess the redemption or atonement thing is not just kind of what I was talking about, where it's actively rejecting the opportunity to atone, but that passive... I just don't want to accept the consequences mm-hmm. you know, that you that you describe. Where it's like, you know, it's been a long time. It's fine. Surely we can let it slide. You know, it's not in your face. You're not firing guns at people trying to force you to repent for your sins. But it's, eh, it's surely we're good, right? Yeah, that, uh, that's so irksome. Like, that kind of, I'm just going to gently opt out of whatever I did for good or for ill. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no. Con- like, action has consequence. It can be positive. It can be negative. But the a sense of an inconsequential universe, it may be the only thing more maddening than a morally <laughs> relative universe. It's like where, where yeah. your actions don't appear to have consequences or those consequences are negligible. That... I mean, that kind of thing can happen in reality and we'll all suck it up because it's reality. But I think that can be really off-putting in a game just because it begins to feel like even more of a vacuum than it is. It's like we've already built our castle in the air. And if there isn't even a (laughs) castle in that air, then I don't know what's going on. It's just a joke, bro. Yep. (laughs) Just a joke. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I want to jump in too because the opposite, and you were talking about this being maddening, for that very reason, one of my favorite stories about the idea of a moral universe in the Bible is the prodigal son. Mm. Because that is a comforting story when you identify with the prodigal son. But (laughs) when you identify with the other son, it can be really infuriating. It's like, that is what mercy looks like from the other side. The person does the work, does the right thing, and then gets, it's the other person who gets rewarded. It it seems like it's the other Mm -hmm. person who screwed it up and then came back. And that can be also a moral struggle that you can introduce into a game is that at a certain point, if you're the one who's been doing the right thing and being the hero, that may, the end game of that may be mercy for those who screwed it up, who did wrong, and they have to be forgiven. They have to get all the stuff you fought for. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of this image. I'm forgetting the author now, but there's this really interesting piece called like the Hounds of Heaven. And it's this image of of God and specifically of like the idea that Christ pursues the idea that forgiveness isn't just waiting for you. Forgiveness is currently chasing you down an alley because it loves you so much. Like, and that's (laughs) always been something I've kind of wanted to play around with in gaming potentially, because the idea that someone is like relentlessly merciful, like 
not only do I forgive you, I am here with breakfast, and I want to <laughs> see you tomorrow and the next day, and I am so glad you're still around even though you've done a million terrible things. Like, that would be so hard to play and so hard to, like, really wrap your mind around, but it's an interesting idea, and I really like it. And what about, what a great ending to the cliche of the player character who's after the person who killed their parents. Yeah. Is that yeah. person never has to pay for their crimes. They're redeemed and they never have to pay, and you have to come around to celebrating that, you know? Yeah, like, right. it's, a, it's a weird, it's a really challenging and interesting little uh, dynamic and image. Yeah, to blend two things that maybe shouldn't be blended, uh, the Princess Bride and Les Mis, <laughs> it's, almost as if, it's almost as if Inigo Montoya finds a six-fingered man and he's become Jean Valjean in the intervening time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, but, but you <laughs> killed my father, and I am so sorry. Yeah. Well, this is kind of anticlimactic. Uh, <laughs> there's a good steak yeah. place down the road from here. Why don't you tell me what you've been doing for the last 40 years while I've been training to avenge myself on you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go talk this out. Let's get ice cream. Yeah. And I mean, this is an example. Yeah. If, if this came up in a game, you know, I think you could have players who up to this point have been on the same page suddenly be at real crossroads if this hasn't been discussed or, or expressed through the through gameplay of like, well, wait a minute, what kind of universe are we living in? Like, don't people who kill people's parents ultimately have to pay? Or don't they? It's, it's yeah, it's a mm -hmm. good question to have an idea about. If you want to signal a clear moral universe, you do want to know what that sort of thing is. And you could go, like, anywhere on that spectrum, but it's probably a good idea to let people know where you're at. There you go. All right, since we're talking about heroic protagonists, let's talk about heroes. Heroes, in any setting that's designed like this, where you're paying attention to the moral universe you're creating. Heroism has certain effects, and you have to make choices about what heroism means. Is heroism something you are simply born as, or is this a setting where anybody can be a hero? Yeah. We're all speechless. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, there, there are two things buying in my mind. Um, but did you have something, Katrina? Still thinking. You go okay. first. The two things jump immediately uh, to my mind. Um, the first is Mouse Guard, mm. where any mouse can, any mouse will, but the guard prevails. It is, it's a situation where you're all mice, you know, so you're all these little characters. Even heroic mice are just mice, right? But because it is so important for everyone to pull together, it is, um, it's incumbent upon the individual to do what they're in a position to do for the sake of the others and for the sake of the community. Um, and the guard is kind of the exemplar of that. You know, it's a group of mice who go out with very little, you know, with just their cloaks and maybe their weapons and that's it to do things that sometimes are as mundane as this farmer, like this, this baker can't make his shipment. So some people aren't going to have bread and he's not going to have money for the winter. So can you help him? Can you take his bread somewhere? You know, something as prosaic as that to something like fighting a really dangerous wild animal. But it's all fundamentally the same, which is somebody's in a position of weakness. They need help. Help them. Just out of selflessness, because that's what we do. We're mice. That's a very low-key, universal form of heroism. And for that reason, it can be a very kind of comforting setting to play in, even though it is a very harsh world. Because you know that all the people, which is to say all the mice, are all pulling together. They're trying to make it in a hostile world. And that's an example of a moral universe where there's not necessarily like a cosmic good and evil. And for that reason, we have to be the moral center. As the community, we have to have a value of, of good. The other thing in my mind is Jessica Jones. Oh. <laughs> uh, the constant question of, is Jessica a hero? Because, you know, speaking of worlds that grind you down. Man. Hmm. 
Uh, have you guys seen Jessica Jones or read Jessica? I have not. I have not. Oh it, man! Yeah, I mean, we will. It, it kind of it hits some of my triggers. I'm just like, I just don't want to bother. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I'll give you the um. I'll, I'll give you the the short version just because of how it's relevant to this discussion. Basically, sure. we were talking about noir. Jessica Jones is a person who wanted to be a superhero, ended up in a a really bad abusive situation um, that basically ended her heroic career, um, and is now a private eye instead. And she has really lost a lot of her idealism, and she's dealing with a lot of things in her own life that really prevent her from being the hero she always wanted to be. And over the course of the series, she does some really good things for people, but she also does some things that are um, pretty dang shady, unheroic, and in a couple of cases, sort of unconscionable. And the show is constantly asking you the question, more or less overtly, is Jessica a hero? Because she's been through all this, she's doing her best. But sometimes life puts you in a situation where people only have so much strength. And I think that's, that's a big question you have to ask in gaming. Do you always have the choice to do the right thing? Or can a person be too weak in a moment to do the moral thing? Because if that's the right. case, if you can be weakened to that point, we have to really relax our judgment about who is a hero and who isn't. You know what that reminds me of? Hmm. The um hmm. the depression RPG that got put out a little while ago where there's all these like mentally healthy choices and they're grayed out, you can't click on them. Mm. Oh. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I haven't Oh, what was the, I don't remember what that's called, but Yeah, I, I can't mm, remember either, cool. but and I remember the, the creator got just manhandled by Gamergate too, but I, I cannot for the life of me remember what the actual name of the game is. I, I only played a few minutes of it, and I kind of got the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it was it's very much like that, where it's like, okay, here's the virtuous thing, but I just can't do it right now. <laughs> I, just, I just lack something in myself that would allow me to do that. As somebody who's recently been struggling with some anger and depression issues, yeah, that is absolutely what it is. There's a, um, a concept that I think people are slowly starting to pay more attention to compassion fatigue Mm -hmm. and decision fatigue. It is hard to make good decisions at the end of the day because you've been making decisions all day. Workout people will tell you if you can go work out in the morning because it's so much easier to say, I've had a long day. I've been worn down. I'm just going to skip the gym today. And it's not because you don't have the energy for it. You don't have the mental energy to make the right decision after having made decisions over and over through the day. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's definitely true. And if you think about how um, this has been commented on, like a traditional dungeon crawl, right? That's an aspect of mm-hmm. life that the traditional dungeon crawl elides uh, because you're expected to spend day after day down in these life or death situations in isolation and continue just as, you know, as long as you've got one hit point, you're mentally fine. As long as you're conscious, basically, you're 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 mentally fine. You are raring to go, making good decisions, being tactical with the group, and that's not reality. Someone who who leaves the house in the morning planning to go slay the dragon, you know, after a few life or death encounters in one day, you're not making great decisions anymore. It's hard to be compassionate toward the random beggar or you know the hostage because you've been through a lot. And I think that. Again, it depends on what kind of game you're trying to play. Uh, there, in a moral universe, ironically, that is very bright and happy, we tend to demand that heroes do that all day long. Whereas mm-hmm. it's really in the gray universe 
where maybe we get a little bit more compassion as viewers or readers and are willing to say, you know, maybe this person doesn't get it right every time because they also have other things going on, you know, and we're willing to forgive a little bit. I think that's one of the things that can make those universes compelling is um, the sense that anyone in those universes can be a hero today by making the right decision at the right time because it's hard for, Mm. like, given a room full of people, maybe maybe 20% of them even have the capacity to make the right decision right now. But if one of them does, it could change everything. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be really exciting and, and kind of put this streak of optimism. It, it keeps them from becoming like really, um, really dark, really kind of, I want to say crushing, <laughs> crushing universes where you feel like no one can ever do the right thing. When you feel like we can't all do the right thing all the time, but there's a chance that it, enough of us will that we'll actually get something really good done. And mm-hmm. I, I really like universes where it, it seems like anybody could be heroic today. We just don't know who's going to do it, and we don't know if they're going to have the wherewithal to do it, but we can hope so. Yeah. Well, and there's stories in the real world of people who have done things like that. I I, um, I wish I could remember this officer's name, but I remember reading Stephen Ambrose's Citizen Soldiers years ago about World War II. And there was this one particular officer that he was on like this fortified hill position with a bunch of his troops and he was awake continuously for something like four or five days and his leadership kept all of those other people on the hill from being overrun and saved a whole bunch of his troops yeah i mean he was done for like two weeks after that when they finally got reinforced and stuff but you know you you think about somebody who's been awake for three days continuously and is still making good decisions that's pretty darn heroic that's a human Yeah. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters that comes to mind. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, the point of highest reality. I think that's a good baseline for heroism in many settings. It's not this hero is courageous, courage as a virtue independent of anything else, but rather they're willing to live up to their other virtues when pressed. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good way to look at it, because when you think about the other virtues, like the idea of prudence or kindness or mercy, it takes guts to do any of those things when it's hard. It takes courage to say, you know, I am going to extend this hand or I'm going to extend this forgiveness or I'm going to extend this compassion to this person because you never really know what's going to come of it, especially in in the world. Like it it takes a. it takes courage to do those things or to make the those like you think about that soldier up on a hill for four days to keep making prudent decisions for four days takes a lot of guts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk then a little bit about about good guys. Right. We've talked about heroes. Let's talk about the good guys collectively. Do all good people converge toward the same values and attitudes in your setting? I have read some settings where they absolutely do. I have not found them particularly interesting from a moral perspective, more or less, kind of depending on characters and other things. There's a like a myth setting or something like that where there's literally good people and bad people, and it's these people are of the light, these people are of the dark, and that's it, the end. Go fight the go fight the other side. Blah. Are you referring to the myth games? Yes. See, those are pretty good games, but yeah, it's very simplistic. Super simplistic. There's some interesting notes about those attitudes in the GURPS myth book, by the way, 
Fair enough. We don't really have time to go into now, but... Right. But by the same token, you have a pretty monolithic set of good guys in, say, David Edding's Belgariad, but it's nowhere near so obnoxious. Or Lord of the Rings, for that matter. True. Yeah. Lord of the Rings, another good one. So, you know, it's possible, I think, to have a good set of monolithic good guys, but even in the Lord of the Rings, you have two people opposed to evil or two sets of people opposed to evil who end up on completely different sides of things. Look at Denethor. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I think in, um, in gaming, especially to get the PCs on the same page, just because they're good. Like it's one thing to say there is this monolithic good guy group and you know, the, the gooder you are, the more you will tend to agree with this set of precepts until if you are at the goodest, then you'll agree about everything. But then if you add a PC to that mix, it's like, well, no, that's another human being who has different life experience and values than the GM and is not going to agree every time with the goodest characters. And is necessarily stubborn because they're a player. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Especially if they're a player, if they're a player dedicated to like, I'm going to play uber good guy. I'm going to play the best guy. Uh, again, that is that is a thing that you run into if you're playing Paladins. You're trying to play a, a paragon of virtue as you understand it. This will almost never be mm-hmm. exactly the same set of values as another person at the table's paragon of virtue. Yeah. Which I think is really fun. I was just going to say, it's it's really nice when you've got people who are committed. Like, people with convictions, characters with convictions are so compelling. And they're so much more interesting than characters that don't have them. And you can start out kind of, like, not knowing exactly what your character believes and develop that in play. But... Once your character has some convictions, that means you can get into real disagreements and have real growth, and it's it, it makes a big difference. The the having the general monolithic like basically these guys are all team good and they've got these things in common. That's fun and that can be useful, especially for kind of in a world building way. Like here's things that these cultures generally agree about being good things to do and not so good things to do. But then to have things that are really important, like maybe we all agree that. It's not cool to stab people as a rule. Don't do it. But then you've got someone who has like a really serious conviction about it. someone who's a very serious pacifist or someone who is a very serious like if we don't assassinate evil people, then we are committing a moral wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, those are those are characters with convictions and they're going to conflict. It doesn't have to be that um, that thoroughly contrary. But I think that that sense of someone who really believes something and is doing it for morally motivated, positive reasons. They believe this is what is good for the world. And having that in conflict with someone who likewise says, I believe this because it is good for the world. That's really dynamic and it's really interesting. If you want a really good piece of media to take in, that's, well, just a generally good piece of media on its own, but also examines these themes really well. The first season, plus about the first three or four, I want to say, episodes of the second season of the Longmire TV show is amazing at this hmm. because you have this group of characters where the central character of the show, the, the one that it's named after is Walt Longmire. He's this Wyoming sheriff. He's not perfect, but he is clearly a good dude. And for the entire first season and the very beginning part of the second season, he is up for election and his opponent is one of his own deputies. And the show writers did not take the easy way out and make either one of them the bad guy. They are both not just good people, but both actively, intentionally, somewhat courageously good people. And as the show moves on, you'll you'll see like the cracks and the flaws in both of them. But they are both trying. They both have that that strong moral center as a motivation. 
And yet for a large chunk of the beginning part of the show, these two characters are both having to cooperate and are in conflict, just like some player characters with different moral compasses. Mm -hmm. So if you want to see a, a place where that works, that might give you some ideas on how to make it work. I cannot, I just can't recommend Longmire highly enough anyways, but especially for this, I think that first season and change is really useful viewing. Hmm. It sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll um, jump in here too with like, it, I think it's easy to see how it can be very interesting when you've got good guys who disagree. One of the reasons uh, not to do that or that can be difficult to do that is if you do have a moral universe where good is very definite and absolute. And I find this to be the case. And, you know, I'm I'm the only person here in the virtual room who is not a Christian, so you would know better than I would. But in some of the stories of the Old Testament, this is difficult because you have God is telling people what to do. And it would be difficult for a good person in that story not to want to do that. And so it's difficult because you kind of have this true north. You know what you sh what you need to do. You know what needs to be done. And so you kind of have to differentiate the characters more by their weaknesses, it seems like. Because if everybody were doing what they were supposed to do, they'd be on the same page. The same thing is somewhat true in, like, let's say, Star Wars, where you at least sometimes I get the sense that if all the Jedi were as good as they could be, they'd kind of be Yoda. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> They would, be, they would be patient, and they would be wise, and they would know what to do. And so when you've got a character like Luke in Empire Strikes Back, he's kind of he's got to be less of a Jedi. He's got to be less good in, in that moral universe, because then he goes and helps his friends, disagreeing with Yoda. If he were an enlightened Jedi, then he'd want to do the same thing Yoda does, and you wouldn't really have a story, and you wouldn't really have character differentiation. Well, right. And interestingly, in that particular case, if we're going to call that that little bit of human brashness or whatever kind of a flaw of his well in that case the star wars universe is a place where only flawed people can actually be heroic that's interesting because it, yeah you re I, I think if you wanted to kind of deconstruct it you've got two kinds of heroism happening in the star wars movies at least in the the original trilogy maybe you've got traditional kind of hollywood heroism where we go and run in and you know save the princess and do all that stuff and then you've got what the force is about you've got what the jedi are supposed to do which is much more gentle, patient, and kind of enlightened, uh, especially as, as exemplified by Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back. And we, the movie gets to have it both ways because it has Hollywood heroes who get to be Hollywood heroes because they're not very good Jedi <laughs> in the case of Luke. Um, <laughs> or, you know, in the case of like an anti-hero uh, like Vader, you know, he's, he's fallen and that's why he can have something different. You know, the Emperor is clearly on the dark side. But if you look at somebody like Obi-Wan or, or Yoda they would not make good sort of leading action heroes because they're too good to be Hollywood heroes. Which is why you had to have Han Solo. Mm -hmm. He's helping right. to round and, out this roster. And part of the reason why the origin or the uh, prequel trilogy wasn't so good. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there's that. But it's also why Obi-Wan has to die in the, in episode four. Mm -hmm. it, it's motivational. Sure. Right. Death of the mentor. Classic. Yep. story trope but he also he doesn't have flaws to over overcome yeah yeah as part of his hero's journey to go back to the old testament for a minute one of the scriptures that i was thinking about when we were sort of considering this moral universe thing is when um when um god announces the destruction <laughs> of sodom and gomorrah all oh, right and mm. abraham bargains with god like you are the most just Will you not? Will you slay the innocent with the guilty alike? What if there are fifty good people there? I will spare Sodom and if there are fifty good people there. I'm not trying to be a paying god, but what if there's only like 
40. If there are 40, I will spare these cities. What about 30? Please don't get impatient with me, but you know, what if there's only 30? Then please let my family be in that 30. Okay, if there are 30 innocent people, I will spare the cities for their sake. And you have this really interesting scene where it's like, why is Abraham doing this? And it's like, because he knows that God is the best. And this mm-hmm. seems weird to him because he knows people in that city. Is it really the best? Is it really just to obliterate these places? And so this this um, moment that is both kind of brave and foolish and a little unusual in the Bible is an interesting episode where we have someone talking to God, talking to the ultimate good in the universe who tells you how to be a good person, saying, are you sure about this? Is this really the right thing? And you have this, it comes out like, okay, if there were 10 good people there, I'd leave the whole city standing. Are mm-hmm. we done? We're done having this conversation. And it's right. it's a really interesting episode where you have this sense of, is the monolithic thing completely accurate? Or do you have to test it a little? Do you have to prod it? Do you have to think your way through it? And what does that mean? Yeah, right. And can it be bargained with? I remember... When we did our crossover episode on Prince of Egypt, Mm -hmm. we were talking about something very similar because I I think we were talking about characters we'd play and I was talking about Aaron or or possibly a little after that. But there was a – we brought up a scene in Exodus where God is basically saying, you know, the Israelites have turned against me. They want to go back to Egypt. Well, you know, I'm going to send a a plague or some other disaster upon them and just wipe them out. And uh, Moses and Aaron go and pray – and the you know the Bible says, and God's mind was changed. Yep. And it's like to us that seems a little foreign, mm-hmm. but yeah. that's the relationship that you have between a God and His people. You know, and God is a very clear person in the scenario. He's got a clear personality mm-hmm. coming through. Yeah, those stories uh, fascinate me, and and I think you know maybe even the one with uh, Moses and Aaron is more to the point than the uh, Abraham and and God one because in the text we were looking at this before the episode it makes a point that God is sort of i wouldn't want to say testing Abraham but he's he's giving him a chance to be an equal partner in the moral decision making he's giving Abraham to right. show that he has a grasp of justice and fairness beyond just obedience to God which is important because you know he's made a covenant with Abraham he's not just Abraham's not his slave he's he's a partner in this um, but I think, yeah, like the idea that you could change God's mind, that you could arrive at a, at a better sense of a, a truer sense of justice and, and goodness is, uh, yeah, it's, it's stunning. And, and as an aside, I'll say sort of a challenge to religious people, it seems to me who are doing things that are wrong because that's what they see written in a book somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Just my own, like, yeah. you know, well, if you have an internal sense that something that, is wrong and evil to let it continue because that's what you were told is maybe not acceptable on biblical evidence. But anyway. Right. Yeah. And I think you can take that same point of God is not necessarily, it is in some ways a test, mm-hmm. right? You know, are, are you willing to look past the letter of the law and discover the spirit of it? Yeah. Right. I mean, that that is in many ways... Uh, a, a significant part of the message that Christ brought, mm-hmm. you know, it, the the legalism is not important. It's you know the the spirit, literally the spirit contained within the law that you know is that that loving spirit that underlies everything that makes up the law and our relationship between each other and with God. That is what's really important. And looking at the heart of it, 
that's that's important. Yeah, the Sabbath was made for man. The man was not made for the Sabbath. Right. And also the preference of mercy to justice, potentially. Like, you could make an argument that, like, uh, you know, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, well, those ten people would be collateral uh, damage. Like, the, the, that's an acceptable loss to take an evil out of the world. That might be just, but it wouldn't be merciful. It wouldn't be as perfect as it could be, which is an, an interesting dynamic to examine, like, that's certainly an ethos that we get a lot of in Christianity, but we may not get in gaming and we may not get in our own habits of thought. It's one to kind of play with and explore. And getting back to our, our right. sub point here about, you know, monolithic versus these kind of uh, factions of, of good guys, that's a way to achieve that when you have a very absolute and, and centered moral universe, but you do want to have diversity in your good guys. The idea of aspirational virtues, like mercy strikes me as very aspirational. The question is always, how merciful can we be? How merciful can we stand to be? Because clearly there's a point where it's like dangerous and unjust, right? So you're trying to do better. Even if you all have the same values, you can disagree in that aspiration. How merciful can we be here? Maybe a faction of us thinks we can be more merciful and another faction thinks, no, we can't go that far. We would like to, but we can't go that far. And so that difference in aspiration creates a conflict where everybody's really on the same page. It, it makes me actually think of the recent episodes that you guys have done on Saving the Game about a these uh, uh, the historical heresies episodes where you talked about readmitting people who had given up their faith or the word is escaping me right now. Renounced their faith. Renounced their faith. Yeah. yeah. Um, that yeah. seems to be a difference between, you know, how merciful can we be here safely for the integrity of the church, which you could all agree on what is good and what is right and still disagree about, you know, how far can we go? Right. And we've sort of slid uh, rather neatly into talking about faith as part of this moral universe. I think necessarily, and this is a setting decision that I think people will make very early on, maybe even before they start thinking about moral universes, mm -hmm. but is there a God or some supernatural moral force in the setting? Is piety a virtue? Is there an interaction between morality and faith? Certainly, I think we've already talked a fair bit about piety maybe not always equating with virtuous behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. King Arthur Pendragon uh, and a lot of the other Arthurian legends, I think, do a good job of bringing that conflict out. You know, I I have a code and I have virtues that I think are important, but, you know, when I'm called to live by the letter of that code, that doesn't always lead to good behavior. And players can uh, of a game like that, like, you know, King Arthur Pendragon, can sit back and say, huh, well, it seems like there's a conflict between the code and what I think is right. Yeah, definitely. I'm interested in that kind of play too, because I think it very organically matches the way you play a character, which is you start with an idea of sort of abstractly and more clear cut than is realistic. Like, what does my character think is right? What do they like to do? What do they not <laughs> like to do? What do they believe in? And then you slam into reality, you know, so to speak. You slam into the, the fiction of this character's life, which is like actual, like, specific characters and situations and you kind of have to adapt that to you know well, what does this character do in a given situation faced with this character looking at them you know needing their help or who they really feel angry at or whatever and you have to see what happens in that collision and i think that matches the moral conflict between what you theoretically believe your values are and then what you really have to do when you're staring at specific consequences in front of you from your action Right. And that's where, you know, to answer kind of one of the things you brought up earlier, when you look at some of these Old Testament characters, it's, well, why don't they just do as they're told? Well, it turns out that's hard. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> yeah. 
here's God's word. Okay, I get it. The doing it of it, though. You mean I gotta? Well, I mean, you just mean I gotta do that. Remember how much Moses just argued with God? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that was yeah. That, that was, was face to face. Yeah, that was that was a serious like. That was almost a knockdown dragout argument. I mean, yeah, that got but, pretty heated. Yep. <laughs> yeah, as close to face to face as you can get, but yeah, it, it's that same idea of well. I don't know. It's all the way over there. Mm-hmm. It's tough. But for a lighter-hearted example, Jonah. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly the same sort of thing. All right, God, I'll... No, you know what? I'm just going to go to completely the other end of things. It's like... I'm running away from yeah. <laughs> God is like, no, you're not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and, you know, Jonah there is, I, I think, having a very, a very relatable and very interesting for play conflict he's having a a, but it it emerges clearly from weakness if if jonah were better because that's that's his arc right he's being brought around to understand something i feel like in that story and if he had Mm -hmm. understood at the beginning we wouldn't have a story well he would have a story but it would be shorter yeah (laughs) um in contrast it, it seems like if you um if you pull back the narrative voice telling you so clearly what you're supposed to do then you have a different kind of moral conflict where you can have more of this interplay between consequences of your actions versus the code you have. For example, we see uh, at a remove, we see this happening with the early church in the epistles, right? Where people who are used to living by certain rules or who perhaps are suffering in their church communities for lack of having clear rules about what they're supposed to do are really grappling. Like it's not just our moral weakness, but we literally don't know what to do. And of mm-hmm. course, that's always compounded by your human frailties. But there's a legitimate uncertainty in the middle of it. We we don't know what we're supposed to do here um, because we're finding that the practice is just not covered completely by what's written down or, or by what the text that we have or, or what we've been given uh, by whoever the founder is. So um, that can be... I, I think that can be a really kind of interesting thing to set up if you have characters who are comfortable operating in a little bit of uncertainty. In real life, that's very uncomfortable to not know what is right, to not know what you're supposed to do. But for gaming, it gives you a whole different kind of um, conflict to play with. Not just are these characters strong enough, but God isn't, God is here, but God isn't here talking to you. You are being left to figure it out a little bit yourself. And how much do you have to work from? Yeah. Like you think about um, in the early church, not a lot written down. What was written down may or may not be in your language, access to teachers, and then, I mean, and you could certainly do similar conflicts in your own, in your game. Like, do you have access to what the rules are supposed to be? Do you know them? Do you even know that there are rules? Or are you operating from a position of, like, good intentions and no information? That can be a really interesting Mm -hmm. conflict. I'll give you an example because there were, um, you know, dietary issues that came up with the early church. You could have a fantasy game where you're uh, from a church that is uh, everyone is a vegetarian. That is part of the precepts of the faith. And then while you're on an adventure, you meet a group of obligate carnivores who would like to convert. But they can't be vegetarians. Because they don't know how to eat. (laughs) Well, so so your God is not there in front of you telling you like, well, yes, clearly you make an exception because these people want spiritual enlightenment, but they just have a different biology from you. So they can't follow that one rule. Or do you say, no, I'm sorry, that's against the rules. Um, you know, there's no one there to give you the easy answer. So it, it goes to, you know, what Grant was talking about of trying to find the spirit behind the code. Yeah. On a, a somewhat related 
note, talking about codes, one of the things that I really like about D&D 5th edition is the flaw that is part of character creation. It's not a mechanical flaw. It's character flaw. Mm-hmm. And uh, the best description I've had for it is, what is something that makes you break your alignment? Mm. Right? You can kind of think of alignment sort of like a code in D&D, right? I'm generally going to act this way. And the flaw is, okay, what pulls me out of that box, either because it's so important to me or it's a big weakness for me? What gets me out of this this one-ninth of the D&D spectrum and somewhere else? Uh, my wife's D&D character, for example, you know, she's playing a rogue. She doesn't steal unless it's really important and you don't need it. Hmm. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Right. Or I need it right now. You know, she's not going around just pick, you know, picking pockets for the fun of it. But look, I need to go buy this thing because it's really important. Like, not just like, oh, I want a nicer meal. I, I have to go get this thing. It's going to solve a problem. You're not using that 30 gold. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I'm just going to take it. Yeah, she, <laughs> or, she described it as I need it more than you do when we were talking about it in the... <laughs> The yeah. character creation setting, those were her exact <laughs> words. Right. So, you know, that's a cool character flaw because it, you know, she's got, she's got a moral compass, but this is one of those things that pulls it right out of there. And we're, it's, we're talking more about character than a collective universe thing, but if you have a universe where everybody has something like that, well, that's, that's kind of neat. It is. It, it adds a lot of richness to the world. It also makes your characters seem a lot more like real people, because I think we've all got those things. Like I think of them as the think of them as the things that like push my buttons, and I go from being my generally amiable, pleasant human being to vengeful. It's like there are certain things where it's like, oh, you done did it, you crossed that line, and yeah. now now we are not cool. And there there are a few things that it's like if someone. Um, if something happens or I learn something, it's like, well, that's that. <laughs> nope, you mm-hmm. have crossed the threshold. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't big. have to be big. It can be little things. I mean, what do we talk when we talk about pet peeves? We're really saying, oh, here's this little thing that I completely overreact. Yep. To. Yeah. Right. Like for me, people who leave shopping carts out in the parking <laughs> lot. <laughs> blocking spaces i get so mad <laughs> now yeah. some of that is kind of good because i will get out and move the shopping cart i'm not obliged to but i usually do people who don't use their turn signal like <laughs> yes okay chris has, had, <laughs> chris has had to help me work on my anger about people who don't yeah, use but- their turn signal because i was getting into an unhealthy habit of expressing my displeasure <laughs> about their failure to use their turn signals. And uh, I was like, honey, you're going to get stabbed, and I don't want this to happen to you, so please stop flipping off all the drivers who don't use their turn signal in the county. Like, okay, okay. It's a, it's a small town. There's like a 90% chance they're going to the same place you are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's that. And, and, you know, sure, okay, there's a, a small positive coming out of me getting angry about carts left in the parking mm-hmm. lot. I'm fixing yep. it. But that kind of anger... Even if it just stays in the car isn't healthy, nope. especially if I've got kids in the mm-hmm. car. You know, that's not good because I'm yelling about it. That's not nice. It's not a healthy thing for me. And so those pet peeves, if everybody kind of has something that'll get under their skin, well, that can kind of 
pull things down collectively in in interesting ways. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of this that we haven't talked about much but is is a big part of the interest is how players and and everyone at the table is going to react and and kind of sort people morally because we do have this moral universe that is giving us some kind of benchmark. So now we're having to sort people and having those kind of flaws that break up what can otherwise be a character who is very easy to place. Um, that really increases the interest of the game. And and in fact, talking specifically about alignment, you know, alignment traditionally has been like, what cosmic force are you aligned with? And I think if Uh you talk about alignment instead as something like a moral code or even as just a descriptor, like if if an anthropologist were watching you secretly, how would they characterize like the behavior of this type of person? You know, what, what do they typically do? But then there's a flaw or whatever that breaks that up. So there's an exception. There's a little nuance there. It increases the interest in in sorting that character, and it allows you to kind of reflect on that moral universe. So, for example, if you have a character who has maybe unhealthy or misguided anger that motivates good action, but they're on the team with the people who are maybe generally a lot more moral than they are, don't have those kind of anger problems, they do things for better reasons, then it's like, yeah, where do we where do we sort that guy? Like, it seems like that guy just fights crime because he likes to punch people, but <laughs> he does <laughs> fight crime. crime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's Booster Gold's flaw? A desire for mm-hmm. fame. But that's why he's a superhero, because he wants to be a famous superhero. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he's actually so. a halfway decent superhero in a lot of the ways that he's portrayed. He's just kind of a glory hound. It, exactly. And flaw, I should stress, you can kind of apply the same thing to a character who you would generally categorize as evil and say yeah they're evil but they've got this one thing that they tend to do good things with you know they're the virtue in their armor you know their their odd streak of good thing they do right terrible to everything except you know they help stray dogs okay i once very briefly played a character in a uh silly teenage mutant ninja turtles game and I wanted to use alignments that never get used in that game. So I created a, a mutant hummingbird who is diabolic, like <laughs> the evilest you can be. But his, his thing is he's a sadist, and that only applies to other hummingbirds. He, de- he just doesn't have that sort of violent feeling toward any other creature. And so for the purposes of play, he can work with the group just fine. It's just if you were another hummingbird and you knew him, you'd know that he was a real bad guy, but, um, you know, he's kind of a monster, but to anybody else, he's just like another, another guy. Um, <laughs> interesting. Die, fellow hummingbirds, yeah. die. As somebody who grew up with hummingbirds, you know, all over the house, that's horrifying, <laughs> but yeah, interesting nonetheless. Hummingbird okay, lander, but- I will be the only one. <laughs> yeah, apparently. It's like buzz buzz. <laughs> okay, now now I'm just picturing joust, but with hummingbirds, and it's fantastic. Yes. Have you ever seen hummingbirds like defend their nests? Yes, isn't I have. It, I've had them attack. Yeah, me. isn't it the most amazing thing and so weird? Like, oh, it's so terrifying because they I didn't immediately recognize it as a hummingbird. I'm like, why is this four inch wasp coming at me? <laughs> <laughs> we we uh, South Carolina is just. We get ruby-throated hummingbirds all over the place, mm. and they're gorgeous. But, yeah, I mean, watching them duel in midair when they're fighting over territory. Yeah. 
Oh it's man, intense. it's nuts. <laughs> it really is. It's a little dog fight. I play adorable dog fight. <laughs> <laughs> lived in a place in Altadena for a long time where, and they nested in the camellias. And so you would see the mm. the male hummingbird out there, like in front of the nesting turf, doing his little like in air dance and make the little sonic boom. Like this is my spot. Anybody comes to this spot, I'm gonna beat you up. And it was just the most fascinating thing. Like the cats gave that whole area a wide berth. Everybody gave it a wide berth, and he got used to, like, the people who would walk by, and he would just kind of buzz you. Like, I'm not going to fly right at your face, but I'm going to, if you, like, get too close to the shrub, I'm going to zoom past you. Like, don't get too close to the shrub. There are baby hummingbirds here, (laughs) and I mean business. It was the best. It's kind of like you walk past the secure compound, and they don't (laughs) start shooting at you or something, but the searchlight just kind of follows you as you walk past. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of that. So, so anyway, next on Saving the Hummingbirds. Um, all right. Totally diverted by hummingbirds. <laughs> yeah, I, not hard. Thanks for listening. Like we said before, this is part one of two, so make sure to listen to the second half of this episode. If it's not showing up in your podcatcher feed, let us know, but of course you can always get it from stgcast.org. Catch you in the second half, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.